You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled The New Face of Customer Verification, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911 and Jumio. Okay. All right. I want to welcome everyone to the webinar today. Um, I'm going to start by thanking you for taking the time out of your day to join us. Um, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing director here at Chargebacks 911. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, we help merchants by identifying and preventing chargebacks before they happen and managing their disputes for chargebacks we were unable to prevent. Uh, I'm excited to have Dean Nichols join us today. Dean is the VP of Global Marketing at Jumio. And uh, Jumio is doing a lot of really cool stuff with customer authentication. So I'm looking forward to today's webinar. Um, Dean, do you want to take a moment and tell us a little bit about what Jumio does? Sure. Thanks, Jared. So Jumio is the global leader in online identity verification. What that really means is we help prove that someone is who they claim to be online. So we do that not only when people are creating new accounts, but also kind of as they're authenticating. So at a high level, we're in the business of just proving, for example, that Jared Wright is Jared Wright online. Good. Well, I am I am Jared Wright. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm, I'm really excited about today's webinar. Um, before I get started, I just want to go over how this webinar will be structured. Um, the first part of the webinar will include a short presentation from myself and then a presentation from Dean. Um, this portion of the webinar will be fairly visual, so it's important that if possible, you close other windows and give us your attention. Um, the second portion of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. Um, this portion will be less visual, so it's okay if you just want to listen to that part. Um, please feel free to submit any questions that you have during the webinar. Um, we promise to answer any questions submitted, if not live, then by email after the webinar. Um, also, just a notification, this webinar will be available hopefully as early as tomorrow uh, for replay. However, not all of the Q&A portion will necessarily be included in that recording. So uh, we encourage you to stay with us today to get the maximum value out of this event. Um, lastly, this and other webinars will eventually be released in audio form on our podcast. Um, if you'd like to find our podcast, just search for Charge Forward, all one word, with Chargebacks 911, however you get your podcasts. Okay, so if, if this is your first um, uh, webinar that I've hosted, um, I've been doing a thing for a while now. I've hosted a lot of these webinars, and at one point it occurred to me that I may be missing out on a great opportunity, and that's because um, you know I have a chance to speak with these uh, subject matter experts, and I wasn't necessarily asking them the real questions that I wanted to know. So I've decided to sort of force myself to start these webinars by asking a dumb question. Um, this might be a question that I'm the only one that has, but uh, I'm also hoping that some of the attendees might be wondering the same thing. So, Dean, uh, can you humor me? Do you mind if I ask you a dumb question here? Lay it on me, Jared. All right. So uh, we were actually talking earlier, and you were telling me a little bit about what Jumio does, and the idea of facial identity verification got me thinking about all the buzz around uh, deep fake videos. 
Um, and for those of you who aren't aware, you know, the deep fake videos are uh, videos where someone has digitally superimposed another person's face onto theirs. Um, and, you know, they're getting very accurate and it's kind of kind of a creepy thing. So a lot of people are talking about the uh, the potential for, you know, uh, misinformation and other things. So so I guess I'm just wondering, since this is really in your wheelhouse, um, you know, uh, are deep fakes something that we should worry about, both for your solution, I guess, just in general as as people? Yeah, I, I think we should. I mean, right now it's more of a meme. It's more entertaining than anything else. In fact, I think the number of uh, deep fakes has more than doubled in the last six months online. What's interesting, about 95% of those are pornographic, where people are putting pictures of uh, politicians on, you know, porn actresses and uh, porn actors. Um, but we're starting to see the use of deep fakes for cybercrime, where people are pretending with deep fakes to be someone else and literally uh, impersonating them with obviously with an amazing amount of uh, reality and depth. And so these kind of impersonation attacks are now becoming a real thing online. And so it's just only starting to emerge, but it's a serious threat. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, in my presentation today as well. Well, that's that's great. I was hoping you had uh, some good news for me. So <laughs> that's so um, that that's really interesting. I appreciate you um, providing that context. Um, okay, so so just today, I'm going to do my best to um, be brief today. Um, Dean has a lot of great information, so I'm going to lean on his, on his expertise for a lot of this webinar. But uh, I'm going to start today with a, a real abstract concept that I've talked a lot about before. And I think it's a good place to start because it will, it will allow me to highlight the value of customer verification. Um, and that concept is simply stated that chargeback management itself is simple. It's the understanding the sources of your chargebacks that's the challenge. Um, now, I know what a lot of people are thinking. You know, there's nothing simple about chargeback management. If there was, we wouldn't be on this webinar. Um, but I'm suggesting that most of the complexities um, that merchants deal with come from misunderstanding what's causing the chargebacks, not necessarily an execution of a chargeback management strategy. Um, so, so let me dig into that a little bit more. Um, this is a slide that I've shown before, and, and kind of in a perfect world, you'd be able to divide all chargebacks into pre and post transaction issues. Um, but unfortunately, as merchants, uh, you, you know, we, we don't have the luxury of having that information, um, you know, and, and chargebacks themselves are essentially just a symptom and uh, not one that has an obvious treatment. So um, in order to be effective at chargeback uh, management, we recommend thinking about them as being caused by one of three sources. Uh, criminal fraud, which is essentially stolen credit cards, identity theft, uh, merchant error, which can include anything like inaccurate product descriptions, shipping issues, things like that. Um, and then lastly, friendly fraud, which, which typically is the largest bucket, but that includes um, in broadest of terms, um, any chargeback that was for one reason or another improperly uh, uh, filed by a uh, consumer. Um, and so, you know, if you're able to successfully put uh, your chargebacks into these buckets accurately, it's it's fairly easy to create a um, course of action. So if you have the, the chargebacks that you know are caused by criminal fraud, I mean, you could address those with uh, a, a variety of diff different solutions, including the solution that Jumio has or any other sort of pre-transaction fraud filter. Um, you know, if, if you have, if you know that there's things that you're doing with your internal operations that are causing chargebacks, those are easy to address. And then friendly fraud chargebacks, um, you should always be disputing. Um, unfortunately, or excuse me, the, uh, the primary tool that most merchants rely 
um, to identify the source of chargebacks are reason codes. And if you're not familiar with them, they're the uh, codes created by the card network that are used to categorize chargebacks. Um, and for the most part, merchants will receive chargebacks in either the fraud or customer dispute categories. Um, and then there's, there's different reason codes that exist within those categories. So um, I, I think the idea that most people have, and I guess in a perfect world, reason codes would make it uh, very easy to begin to narrow down the source of chargebacks. Uh, merchants will often employ one solution for the fraud reason code and another strategy for chargebacks with the customer dispute reason code. Um, the problem with that, though, is that reason codes uh, are, are notoriously unreliable when determining the true source of chargebacks. Uh, we usually see something more like the current slide, and merchants end up deploying the wrong fix for a large percentage of their chargebacks. Um, not only that, but they're using if, if they're using a fraud filter, a lot of times what merchants will do is they will use chargeback data to, to uh, sort of create a feedback loop and then um, train their uh, machine learning algorithms uh, to prevent fraud. Um, but they're, you know, if, they're, if they're using the chargeback reason codes, a lot of times they're putting da bad data into that um, uh, learning algorithm. And so they end, up, they end up having all kinds of issues with uh, uh, false declines and things like that. Um, and so, so when you think about this, this brings me to, from our, our perspective, um, why solutions like Jumio are a valuable tool for chargeback management. Um, and that's essentially that uh, if you verify who the, that the customer is the actual cardholder, you can essentially take criminal fraud chargebacks off the table. Um, and if you're able to effectively do that, you're, you're left with a much more manageable task because then you really only have two variables um, and you're not playing three-dimensional chess anymore. Um, and then the, the other reason why uh, Jumio is valuable is that it can be your secret weapon for chargeback disputes. Um, if someone does file a chargeback, the positive ID confirmation is just the type of compelling evidence you can use in your response um, and, and, you, and you should have uh, much better results um, than, than if you didn't have something like that in place. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and I, I went through that kind of quick, but I just wanted to give as much time as I could to, to Dean because he's got a great presentation. So um, Dean, do you want to you take the wheel from here? Great. Thanks, Jared. Um, so I, my name is Dean Nichols. And I do head up global marketing and uh, I'm going to start really by setting the stage, right? So I'm going to share some pretty scary stats um, with you guys and then talk a little bit about how we can help solve some of these problems. So as you're probably all aware, there's these large scale data breaches and they've sadly become the norm. Uh, just in 2019, there've been about 3,800 publicly, publicly disclosed data breaches and they've compromised more than 4 billion records. When you say records, that could be a name, it could be an address, it could be a phone number. But in many cases, we're talking about usernames and passwords and other personal information. These are some of the biggest ones that have happened over the, like, the last 12 months. Um, some of these names you'll recognize, Facebook, Marriott, uh, exact, uh, um, Exactus, et cetera. Um, Collection One kind of fell off the radar. Collection One is a, a breach um, that, that was disclosed back in January. And it included a, really a list of names and email addresses that appeared around the dark web. And it contains about 773 million unique email addresses and 21 million unique passwords. And if you combine that, it results in over 1.2 billion combinations of email and passwords pairs. The point I kind of want to make out, make with this um, slide is that every time you hear about a data breach, what you should presume is that all of that data is destined for the dark web. 
where it's going to be bought and sold, often in aggregate, by cyber criminals and often for pennies on the dollar. This gives you a sense of how much your information, my information, is being sold on the dark web. Uh, this comes from uh, a company called Privacy Australia uh, from June, and, and it just shows you um, how much stuff is out there uh, about us and our details on the dark web. So, for example, a social security number can be had for uh, less than a dollar. You can get bank details for 15 to 20 dollars. Medical records fetch actually a little bit more because there's usually a lot more information um, associated with a, a, a data breach associated with medical records. Um, even driver's licenses and passports can be purchased for less than $20. You could also purchase a, what I'm calling a Happy Meal uh, if you get a, a passport, a selfie, and a corroborating utility bill for $61. So why is all of this important? Well, if you think about how companies are verifying the identities of people online, often they're relying on this kind of data. And if this kind of data is in the hands of the bad guys, oftentimes it's them who's impersonating legitimate users when they're creating those accounts. And not surprisingly, with the growth of the dark web, with all of these data breaches, you're starting to see a kind of a commensurate growth in account takeover. Uh, account takeover is a form of identity theft, really where a criminal is using someone else's uh, stolen data, you know, usually their username and password, to get access to an existing account. Uh, kind of what, an interesting stat that came out this year was that Javelin Research found that if you looked at existing card fraud losses, they actually declined from 8.1 billion in uh, 2017 to 6.4 billion. So that's more than like a 20% decline. So you think from a, a credit card perspective, we're moving in the right direction. Um, however, during that same period of time, account takeovers actually jumped 300%, right? And so uh, it's increasingly becoming a, a problem. And so I would argue account takeovers is really the new battleground for cyber criminals and retailers really need to start waking up to this reality. In addition to uh, all of this data seeping into the dark web, what cyber criminals are, are actually starting to use are bots, right? And, and they're really exacerbating the problem. Bots are being weaponized to enable fraudsters to kind of ping multiple websites with different combinations of usernames and passwords, usually again acquired from the dark web. Uh, and, and what they call, essentially the attack is known as credential stuffing. And essentially they're automating all these login requests at a massive scale in hoping that they can actually get in successfully into some of these accounts. Um, the problem gets a little bit worse when you have users, your users, who are repurposing the same password across multiple websites. And that really only just increases the surface area um, of the problem. Another um, powerful tool, um, and it's been used for the last decade, uh, is social engineering. And social engineering is really just a, a, a form of psychological manipulation of people into performing actions or divulging information to others, right? In many cases, we're talking about usernames and passwords. This is almost always done via phishing emails, um, and they attempt to kind of lure unsuspecting users to click on some kind of malicious link, really, which enables the fraudsters to capture their username and password. It's a big problem. It's getting worse. Um, and the, the level of sophistication for these phishing emails is getting more and more, right? So you'll see the stat on the screen that says the number of phishing attacks has, has risen by 27.5% to over 137 million people, not number 137 million attempts in the third quarter. That's from Kaspersky. Um, and it used to be a year ago, I could spot a phishing email from a mile away. 
not anymore. They're getting more and more sophisticated, and they're looking more and more legitimate. So we've talked a little bit about this. If you think about your site, if you think about a lot of financial uh, um, service companies, they're really only protected by a username and password. Right? Again, if only the registered user knew that username and password combination, that's great. Right? But unfortunately, that supposed shared secret is not so much a secret anymore, as we've kind of talked about. And thanks to credential stuffing, um, the rates of success for those kinds of credential stuffing attacks is now about 8%, right? So that's a pretty high success rate, right? And so the, the bottom line for all of this is that if you're protecting your site with just a username and password, the chances are you're going to be victimized by some kind of account takeover attack or some kind of impersonation attack. It's pretty scary, right? So again, we're in the business of helping you determine are your customers who they claim to be? Right, so this is getting <laughs> this is getting harder and harder because the, the cyber criminals are getting more and more sophisticated. Put pretty simply, there's really kind of two areas that they're going to go after. They're either going to go and try to create new fake accounts, right, or they're going to try to log in as a, a legitimate user um, through an account takeover and uh, kind of get into an existing account. Right, so I'm going to talk about two different terms, and it's probably important that you understand both. One is known as identity verification. The other known as is kind of user authentication. When I'm talking about identity verification, I'm talking the steps that you take up front to know that the person is who they claim to be. Um, you'll typically ask them when they're creating that account, you know, for their you know, first name, last name, address, et cetera. Um, that's known as identity verification. Once they've been given their login credentials, and now they're logging into their existing accounts, that's what I'm going to be referring to as authentication, right? So if you think about the first part of the problem, which is verification, historically, a lot of retailers have relied on credit bureau lookups, right? So they might ping, for example, um, a, a credit bureau to figure out, does that person, is there a person that, that exists, exists with that name and address? Um, is that a real entity? They're not actually verifying if the person providing that information is in fact that person, just does that entity exist, right? And you can probably start to see the, the problems with that. Knowledge-based verification um, really involves asking the user several kind of what we call proofing multiple choice questions like, which of, which of the following zip codes have you resided in in the last five years, right? And all of those answers are often corroborated against public records, right? So these are some of the more popular ways of verifying people, but unfortunately, they're pretty, uh, uh, they're not very reliable and they're inherently vulnerable. So we've talked a lot about the, the data breaches. I have Equifax on here only because Equifax breach might be considered small by today's standards. There's only about 147 million people impacted by that, mostly folks in the US. But the Equifax compromised kind of a breathtaking amount of highly sensitive information, including our full name, social security numbers, birth dates, address, and in some cases, driver's license numbers. So it's just a ton of information that then ultimately then seeped into the, the dark web. We've already talked about social engineering and phishing attacks, but because that information is out there in the ether, right, it's very easy for fraudsters to answer those kind of knowledge-based questions or to impersonate someone um, to say that I'm, you know, I'm Jared, I live on 123 Main Street, and 
make and ha make ensure that that data matches the data that would be in any kind of credit bureau. So again, the, these identity verification methods are based on what you know, right? And so, but unfortunately, other people know that information too, which makes them inherently weak. So I'm going to switch gears now. So now assume that you we've created the online account, and now people are going to log in. Well, obviously. Far and away, the most popular method of logging into their account is the common username and password. I don't even really call that authentication. I just call that a login because you're not really proving anything, right? But there are other methods of authentication, and these are often used for what we'd call step-up authentication. So when you need an extra layer um, of identity proofing, you might rely on some of these methods. So for example, knowledge-based authentication um, is similar to knowledge-based verification in that it might ask you, based on the questions you provided um, when you created the account, like what's your mother's maiden name or what's your first car, you'd be asked those questions again. And maybe, for example, if it's a high-value purchase, like normally your purchases are $85 and all of a sudden you're making a purchase of $2,500, in that case, they might ask for some corroborating kind of authentication and they might use that method. Um, in some cases, there's token-based authentication, but that's usually used for kind of more identity and access management, not so much in kind of retail environments. But there's also the use of out-of-band authentication, and most of us have experienced this as well. This is when an SMS code is sent to our phone, a four- or six-digit code, and in addition to the username and password, we have to type that code back into the website to prove, in fact, that we are the, the uh, owner of that account, right? And so... But in, unfortunately, these methods of authentication are inherently vulnerable as well. And they're inherently vulnerable because of data breaches, social engineering, phishing attacks, which we've talked about, but also things like man-in-the-middle attacks. And that's where, for example, malware might get installed on a user's phone, and it effectively intercepts those SMS codes, for example. Or something that's recently emerging is something called SIM card swap, where fraudsters are essentially having phone numbers redirected to their SIMs, often through social engineering and other attempts where they convince the, the telcos that, for example, I want Jer I'm, I'm Jared and I want to port the number over to this new SIM, right? And if they're able to successfully convince that, that mobile operator to do that, I can now intercept of all, all of Jared's you know, SMS codes and now get access to all of his accounts, right? So unfortunately, even things that we think is being more secure um, have been proven to be somewhat weak as well. So often when people talk about authentication, they are typically talking about three factors of authentication. Something you know, something you have, and something you are. But think back to some of the stats that I've shared with you over the last 20 minutes, right? Increasingly, you know, the something that you know is also known by other people. So that method has been somewhat neutralized. You think about something you have, which might be the phone, right, where you're getting that SMS code as I've talked about with SIM card swap and with man-in-the-middle attacks, that's also been somewhat neutralized. So then, as a company, what are you left with? Well, it's something you are, right? So that's effectively your biometrics, right? So we're gonna talk a little bit about biometrics, specifically face-based biometrics, and how you can leverage the face to unlock your user's digital identity. So increasingly, modern enterprises need to rely on biometric-based identity proofing and authentication, if for nothing else, to overcome the inherent uh, shortcomings and weaknesses uh, of the traditional methods of both verification and authentication, right? So 
it really is time for a different approach. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about identity proofing and authentication and an approach we've kind of adopted at Jumio to help um, our customers, whether they be financial institutions or e-commerce sites or even sharing economy sites like Airbnb, help them more effectively screen uh, their customers, uh, make sure that they're dealing with the legitimate article. So the way that our solution works is as you're onboarding new customers, we typically do a number of steps. We'll say, provide us a picture, and this is all being done during the account setup process, with your smartphone or your mobile, uh, with your webcam, take a picture of your driver's license or passport. Take a picture front and back, right? The second step is to, um, to take a selfie. Um, and then with that, we have some liveness detection built in, which I'll explain in a little bit. And then what we do is we make sure the ID itself is legitimate and hasn't been doctored or tampered with. And then we compare the picture in the selfie to the picture on the, on the ID document to make sure that it is the same person. Right, so typically this involves these three steps. There's the acquisition step, which is where we're taking a picture of that ID. Then there's the comparison, right, um, of the ID to the selfie, uh, which provides that kind of a corroboration. Now, what we should point out is that when we're doing a selfie, we're actually doing a, we're creating a very short video. Um, it's essentially it's a selfie video, and during that video, we can tell if the person is physically present or not when they're uh, taking that selfie. And so you, you might ask, well, why do you need to do that? Well, the reason we need to do that is because of the use of deep fakes, which we talked about at the beginning, because of the use of pretty sophisticated spoofing technologies, um, oftentimes people might use a video, right, as their selfie instead of an actual selfie. So with liveness detection, specifically certified liveness detection, we're able to determine that the person is physically present and not using a spoof or some kind of deep fake kind of video. Right, And as we do that, we're creating what we call a 3D face map. We do that at enrollment. So as they're creating their new account, we now create a 3D face map. And now, for example, let's fast forward. Let's take that person who has a traditional transaction history of spending $75. Now they have um, a $2,500 purchase, which is a little bit out of the norm. Instead of relying on tell us, Jared, your mother's maiden name, we can, we can just ask Jared, hey, just take another selfie. We're going to create a fresh new 3D face map. We're then going to compare that digital representation of Jared's face, which takes all of two seconds, by the way, to the original face map he created when he created the account. And within a second, we're going to be able to tell uh, the retailer um, that this is, in fact, the same person. You can now go ahead and authorize that transaction. It's a fundamentally a different approach to identity proofing, but it's obviously way more secure, way more reliable than traditional methods of identity proofing whether they be verification or authentication. So, and the other benefit of that approach is that you're starting to use the same biometric for both identity proofing or verification and ongoing user authentication. You don't have to use different technologies um, for both parts of it. You can use the same biometric um, for both parts. So in order to really make this work, right, there are a number of things that really have to be in place. First of all, it needs to be a familiar user experience. And so for many people on the phone, this may not be familiar, but for many, for an increasing number of people, it is. When you think about how you now unlock your phone with your iPhone, more and more people are doing that with their face. So the idea of using your face as your login is becoming fairly commonplace. Um, when you think about the number of other institutions that are using this form of identity verification, which is using an ID document, like a driver's license, and corroborating with a selfie, 
increasingly that's becoming fairly mainstream. The other benefit of this approach is that it needs to be omni-channel, meaning that someone might be able to create um, an account from the privacy of their own, own home, you know, from a desktop computer, but then when they want to do a transaction, they can do it from their mobile device, and it needs to work across those platforms. Obviously, need, there needs to be a, a strong level of fraud deterrence, um, and even just the act of asking a user to provide a selfie if you are a would-be uh, a fraudster or cyber criminal, the idea of you putting your actual face um, in front of the company and providing that to the company you're looking to defraud can have a pretty strong chilling effect, especially when you introduce liveness detection. It introduces an unbroken chain of trust because we're keeping that biometric used throughout the beginning and through the end of authentication, and it's all integrated within a single solution. And what's, what's uh, interesting here is that Gartner has come out and said uh, just this year, by 2022, 70% of organizations using biometric authentication for workforce access will implement it via smartphone apps. Um, by the way, in 2018, that figure was less than 5%. That gives you a sense of the pace at which biometric authentication is being adopted. And obviously, this stat is for workforce access, but you're starting to see biometrics used um, in the kind of retail space as well, um, to a much greater extent. And I think chargebacks is a big area of opportunity uh, for this kind of approach. So lastly, there's some other kind of hidden gems for this kind of approach, right? If you think about what the selfie can do, it can actually allow customers to unlock account access. So for example, password resets are inherently um, risky from a security perspective, again, mostly from an account takeover perspective, because a lot of times the way that bad guys get access into your account is by resetting your password, right? So before someone is able to do that, you might say, okay, before you do a password reset, we want you to take a selfie to make sure you are in fact the registered user, owner of that account, and once you pass the selfie comparison, we can then let you unlock your account. It can help you unlock transactions. It can even help unlock court car doors. What I mean by that is, for example, if you're a rental car agency, it, instead of me having to wait in a long queue at an airport for my car, I could potentially go straight to my car um, in the garage. I'm told I'm in, I'm in lot parking spot A24, and I just provide a selfie, and that unlocks the door automatically for me. No lines, no fuss, and the rental car company knows the person accessing that car is actually the registered account owner. So there's a bunch of possibilities that this new kind of methodology kind of opens up. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Jared to handle some of our Q and A. Yeah, Dean, thanks. Thanks again. That was that was a great presentation. You know, I think that um, I think there's a lot of potential there. And I and I know that we talked about it, um, but but could you give because I, I'm sure that some people have this question. Um, could, could you give us a sense if if uh, if a merchant was to work with Jumio? Um, what type of documentation would you be able to provide to them um, that they could use potentially to dispute chargebacks? So if, if, for example, you've got a positive ID match, you know it's the cardholder that made the purchase, and the cardholder call, calls their bank. Is, is there like a, like a printout or, or documentation? What, how is that documented, and how do you share that with the merchant? So all of these, um, all the, the data and all, even all the metadata, we, we capture um, at the ID level and at the selfie. So we provide a lot of granular detail back to the merchant on every transaction and for every new account that gets set up, right? So they themselves would have a copy of that ID 
they would also see how well the data that we extract from the ID and the self and the mat the face matching part of it, and so they would have all of that at their disposal um, to help defend against those chargebacks. That's that's great. That, that seems like a really powerful weapon. Okay, so I know we had some questions, so let's uh, kind of get into those now. Um, the first question, I'm going to throw this to you, Dean. Um, the user asked, um, what's the average drop-off rate for ID verification mid-flow checkout? Yeah, it really depends. It's all over the map. So you'll have companies like Amazon Prime where it's got a, a very small amount of drop-off because it involves like three clicks. But for a lot of other um, providers, it's and it really depends on, on the use case, um, it can be as high as 25 30 40%. Um, most retailers will, will know that. They'll see how many people kind of start off at the shopping cart stage and how many end up at the bottom of that stage. The more clicks, the more steps involved, obviously the more drop-off there is. Um, and ID verification can certainly help um, with that a little bit as well. Yeah, and one of the things too um, that I think yeah I think this user is kind of driving at is um, when when you first started talking to me about this it, uh, about your solution, it sort of seemed like oh well that would be a really that's like a that's a lot to ask a customer to do. Um, but then I you know I forget what it was. It may have been IRS.com, but there was something where I was filling out and and I'm running into more and more of these two-factor authentications, more of these you know answer questions about you know, where you live when you were a kid and, and, you know, how tall you are, all these different strange questions. And, and I got the, the most difficult one that I've ever gotten. The, um, the question was, um, uh, uh, which of the following streets is located near your residence? And, and they had, they gave me an address that I lived at more than 20 years ago. Um, and, and I'm thinking where I live now, I know maybe two or three of the neighborhood streets. Um, and, and I didn't recognize any of those streets. So, so I really had to, you know, I was unable to access that information. That was, that was a lot of friction. So by comparison, you know, just, uh, snapping a selfie of myself or something like that seems like, seems like a much less friction than some of the other, um, maybe more popular solutions that, um, that, that consumers are having to, to bear. Yeah, and the fact is taking a selfie is becoming fairly commonplace, and it's not just millennials, it's, you know, your parents as well. And so yeah. the whole process, because most people are going to have their driver's license on them or the pass, they're going to have uh, their phone on them. And so it's um, usually it's a 10-second process, whereas for me, the, the example I, I give, Jared, which we talked about was I'm asked a similar question for a lot of these knowledge-based authentication sites, and there can be pretty maddening because I remember I provided them the, the, the question was, what what was my first car, right? And my first car, um, somewhat sadly, because it was virtually a, a portable bomb, I think, was a an <laughs> Audi Fox GTI, right? But I can't remember how to answer that question. That I can't remember if I if I said Audi, Audi Fox, or Audi Fox GTI. And if I if I don't get it right, I'm locked out, right? And and getting locked out is really frustrating, right? And so, um, these traditional methods have all kinds of problems from usability. Um, and so that's also a reason, I think. And they're also obviously inherently insecure as well. And when customers come to us and they're, they're moving off those methods, it's usually either a combination of security or usability or both that they're citing why they're kind of moving away from those methods. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well, mine's even harder because my first car was a Buick LeSabre. And so I'm not <laughs> sure I know how to spell LeSabre correctly. So I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> 
Um, okay, great. The, the next one, um, the, the user asks, will upfront identity verification reduce chargebacks? And this is kind of what I was driving at. And, you know, really any type of thing where you're, you're able to, 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 to mitigate chargeback fraud is going to make not only you're going to have fewer chargebacks because you're going to be able to 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 all but eliminate those type of chargebacks, um, but you're going to be in a better position for dealing with the remaining chargebacks, right? Um, the criminal fraud chargebacks really complicate things so much because um, it sort of makes uh, chargebacks with with that reason code. It sort of makes them untouchable. Um, so by by eliminating or reducing um, to, to negligible numbers um, the amount of actual criminal fraud uh, chargebacks that you're dealing with, you're really in a better position because the rest of them, you know, you, know, you can dispute or you can kind of uh, audit your internal processes to resolve. Um, so so yeah, so identity verification. Well, there's other ways to kind of kind of deal with that criminal fraud problem. Um, but at the end of the day, if if you can verify that the person that made the transaction um, is the person that that owns the credit card or they're who they say that they are, um, then you know that that eliminates. They can't call their bank and say that they don't recognize the charge. Yeah, the one thing I would also add to that, Jared, is if you think about how easy it is to create most online accounts, in most cases, the company is just asking me for information. I'm just filling out forms of information. Right. As soon as you ask the person for a selfie and a picture of their driver's license, if you're a fraudster, you just up the game. Right. I don't want to provide that information because I'm going to now be exposing myself. You know, and that chilling effect, I don't sure if I can overstate how important that is. And so the best way to keep the criminal fraud out of your system is don't let the criminals into your system. Right. So if you have these hurdles up front, um, you're going to keep the bad actors out of your system altogether. Right. So they can't even the accounts will never get created in the first place. So that's why I think this is so powerful when done up front. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's a really good point. OK, the next question is, how can we confirm customer identity without verifying actual documents, uh, credit card, um, DL or bank statement? Yeah, driver's so, license, I guess. Yeah, driver's license. Yeah, so we're obviously relying on a driver's license, and we're relying on that as being kind of the single source of truth, right? Um, and so we are relying on that. We, we're not necessarily relying on credit cards or bank statements because um, oftentimes those can be forged and manipulated digitally. Um, within our software, we probably, if you think about the number of IDs out there on the market, we, we support about 3,000 different ID types. And so even if you think about the state of California, Yes, there's one California driver's license, but there's probably 20 flavors of that. There's driver's permits. There's um, commercial driver's licenses. There's some that are printed in a landscape and some, some in portrait. Right? We need to be able to support all of those. We need to be able to tell if they've been di digitally manipulated. Some of them have watermarks. Some of them don't. Right? So, and those things are changing every year. Right? And so we have to look at all those checks to determine if the ID itself is valid or not. So we actually do all of that hard work. Um, and then we're also then comparing it to the selfie, which is also relying on a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning, et cetera, um, to make kind of a visual inspection. And so we're able, we think that's inherently a lot more um, reliable than relying on paper forms of identification. Okay. Okay, this next question is, how do I stop friendly fraud, which is probably the, the, the million-dollar question. So I'm going to answer this two ways. So the, the first way I'm going to answer it is sort of, um, you know, the 10,000-foot view. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the basic idea that, you know, 
I, I think as as merchants, sometimes people get um, sort of disconnected from um, their customers. Uh, so, so the the first thing that you should do is just try to get in the mindset of your customer, right? So, if if a customer is upset, you know, do they have a way to complain? Do they have a way to easily contact you to seek a refund? Um, you know, are you doing everything you could do to to make sure that you're delivering on the promise that um, you 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 made to the customer? If the, you're the customer's entering into a contract, are you clearly you know outlining the terms of the contract? Um, you know, if if you're doing all of those things and you're still getting friendly fraud chargebacks, and you, and you will get some of them. Um, you know, the answer is that you can't do much. Um, you know, people are just going to sometimes they're going to find it easier to contact their bank than contact you. Um, and there's really not that much that you can do about that. Um, except, and the sort that brings me to the second part of my answer, which is, um, you know, we've seen some really great results with uh, Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry. It's called VMPI. And basically what that enables you to do for if somebody uses a Visa card um, and they contact their bank, a lot of times what it will enable us to do is um, the the, uh, the bank that is talking to the customer can request additional information. Because a lot of times friendly fraud is not a malicious thing. Maybe they're, they didn't recognize a charge because, you know, they forgot or maybe their um, spouse made the purchase. There's, there's all kinds of instances. And so what VMPI allows us to do is it allows us to send additional information about that transaction um, that sort of verifies, look, this is a transaction. This is what it was for. Um, so for example, instead of the just the name of the store, it'll say, you know, Red Boots, or, or um, just as an example, that's a real kind of um, simple example, but um, we, we've seen reduction up to 20% of total chargebacks, and um, they, they primarily help address the uh, issues of uh, false criminal fraud chargebacks. So somebody that calls so that they don't recognize a charge, um, that would be considered criminal fraud normally, um, but, but it helps to, to, to reduce those. So if, if, you know, if, those, if that's something that um, you're interested in, just reach out to to me or to one of our associates, and we can we can talk to you about that. Okay. Um, next question, I'm gonna throw to Dean. Um, it says, "Can you use identity verification authentication for high risk transactions?" Yeah, absolutely. And so, it it's critical though that you're pairing identity verification with authentication in order to do that. So, um, let me use an, maybe example of an online jeweler. Uh, what you first, what we need to make this happen is uh, that benchmark data, that benchmark 3D face map. So when the person creates that online account for the very first time, you need to have essentially that biometric data captured on file on record. Now, so for example, they, there may be a, a small series of purchases they make. Now all of a sudden they, they're buying a, you know, a, a pearl necklace for $20,000, which is out of the norm. You absolutely want to make sure that that person is the account owner. Um, if you've captured that 3D face map up front when they created the account, now you can just ask them to take a fresh selfie. We then convert that selfie into a 3D face map. We then automatically compare it in real time to the, the face map that we had on record. And then we can deliver a, a definitive yes or no to that online jeweler. And then they can then kind of proceed with confidence that this person making the transaction is the actual account owner. right? So it absolutely can be used and is being used in, in that context. Okay, yeah, that seems like a smart use case. Okay, um, this one says, how can we prevent and to respond to members that dispute before contacting the company? <laughs> uh, well, I, again, this is a real, real difficult question to answer um, quickly. Uh, 
the thing probably that I would say, I'm going to reiterate what I said in the last question, and that really is, you know, make sure that they can reach out to you. Um, something I think that just has gotten, you know, everybody from the phone company to, you, you know, a web host company, different, you know, it, it, there really is a, a, seems like a um, divestment. I don't even know if that's a word, but the, that uh, companies aren't investing in customer service like they used to. Um, and, you know, studies show that if a, um, you know, a live person answers a phone, um, you're going to be much more likely to, to you know, uh, find a resolution and uh, avoid the chargeback. But if you put somebody in a phone system and it takes them 15 minutes to get through the phone system and then you put them on hold for 10 more minutes, or, you know, if you have them, you know, go through a, uh, you know, really complicated return process, um, unfortunately, you know, you, you're going to be increasing your chargeback liability. So things that I've talked about before in other webinars is it's important to figure out what that balance is, right? So if, if you have, you know, expense A is, um, you know, full-time customer service staff, and then expense B is, you know, um, the chargeback management and disputing chargebacks and those type of things, um, you know, really kind of evaluate the, the cost benefit um, of these different solutions that you're putting in place. Because a, a lot of these, you know, I, I don't know, a lot of the things that people do to, um, you know, make customer service sort of more affordable for them as a business um, can 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 increase chargebacks. Okay, so this next one I'm going to throw to you, Dean. Um, what are some of the best practices for new customers to for for new customer identity verification? Yeah, there's there's a number of them, and we've been at this for about you know seven or eight years now, and so we've learned through a lot of our biggest customers how to really roll this out the right way. And a lot of it comes down to, we talked a little bit about some of the attrition that an abandonment people see um, with a new account onboarding. And in many cases, again, it can be 40% or more. And I think that the way to reduce that abandonment rate is really to um, provide the fewest number of steps, right? To make the, the experience as intuitive, as simple as possible, um, with the fewest number of clicks as possible. But at the same time, at least provide some base level of rationale for why you're collecting this information. So when you're asking someone for their driver's license or asking them to take a selfie, provide the rationale for why you're doing it. Like we're, we're doing this to protect you, Mr. Customer. We're doing this to make sure your account is safe from account takeover, right? Um, and so part, those are some, some simple things, but there's a lot of, um, the, it's kind of a combination of, of technologies and best practices and some soft skills that make for the best possible user experience. But the bottom line is it's gotta be quick, it's gotta be super simple, intuitive, and it's gotta just simply make sense for your end users. Okay. All right, I think this is the last question. This one's also gonna go to you, Dean. Um, what are differences and similarities between customer verification and customer authentication? Yeah, I mean, this is probably a book, um, that this question. The, fundamentally, you're trying to answer the same question with verification and authentication. You're trying to say, is this person really who they claim to be? Typically, when people are talking about customer verification or identity proofing, that's happening when they're creating the account online, right? Customer authentication or user authentication is happening after they've been given an account and they've been given their kind of their user credentials. How are they logging in? And are you sure that the person logging in is, in fact, the registered user? What's interesting is that for years, um, even today, um, most companies will ha use one set of technologies for um, identity proofing upfront, you know, and they'll use a whole different set of technologies for authentication, right? One of the things we've kind of introduced in this webinar is that doesn't have to be the way it is. It could be that you can use the same technologies, the same biometric, uh, in, this, in our case, a 3D face map, 
and use that for both uh, identity proofing uh, upfront and then for ongoing authentication. And so we actually have written um, an ebook that's super helpful on the website uh, around kind of the, the collision between identity proofing and authentication. And we kind of dig into this topic in a little bit more detail. Um, so if anyone needs a copy of that, they can reach out to Jared or myself on LinkedIn. I'm happy to provide you a copy of that ebook. But the world is changing fast in both of these areas, and it's really changing fast because of biometrics and, frankly, the speed of which fraud is happening online and the emergence of the dark web. So um, the answer, how I might answer this today might be very different how I answered it in six months from now. It's moving that fast. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wasn't aware that there was there was that clear a difference between the two. Um, okay, so I'm going to go back. I think I think we're we're done here. I'm sure everybody's got to get back to their day. Um, but I'm going to go back to the to the slide that has our contact information. And um, if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to either myself or Dean. Um, if we don't know the answer, we'll definitely put you in touch with somebody that does. Okay. Thanks. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. Um, and thanks again, Dean. Uh, great webinar. Thank you.